When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. And uh, Louise Doughty is here. Uh, in the podcast that dropped a few days ago, we talked uh, about her new book, which is called A Bird in Winter. Just before we get to the Q&A, actually, Louise, we had an email, and I mentioned this on the other podcast, from Jack in Pinner, who went to an event that you did. And they were talking, you were talking about your love for John le Carre. And he doesn't get it. OK, he's one of the people that doesn't get John le Carre. And he... Basically, the point of the email is, what am I missing? I think maybe... He's, what... he's tried, but he... Mm, I wonder which ones he's tried. That's what I would need to know. I would definitely go for the early ones. I mean, the spy who came in from the cold and, and all the smiley novels. I mean, one way in, and maybe it's sacrilegious to say this, is to watch some of the really good adaptations. Because obviously... If you're new to spy novels, the whole point is that they're confusing. The characters are confused and you're confused as well. And that's really part of the point. There's a wonderful version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Gary Oldman. Oh, wow. And I think yeah. that's yeah. just one of my favorite films. And there's also a version of A Most Wanted Man with Philip Seymour Hoffman set in Hamburg, I think. And it's quite a strange and beautiful film and the ending doesn't really quite work, but then you watch it again and you think it's a brilliant ending. So I'm I'm all for watching adaptations and working your way in. I love to spy among friends on ITV yeah, as well yeah. with um, Damien Lewis. I mean, I think sometimes getting yourself in the spy fiction mindset is is quite a challenge because you don't get... Sometimes you don't get the immediate rewards of knowing what's going on. The whole point mm. is we're leading you by the hand. Uh, Jack, I hope that helps. Uh, so uh, here we go. Louise, what is the last book that you really, really enjoyed reading? I love the fact that there are two reallys in right. there yes. because it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? It's saying, come on, don't give us the same old guff. about. Most what, people say the last book that they read, which they like, but, you know, I think it means something that you're evangelical about, you know, that yes. you stop people and say, I, you must read this. Yes. I read a memoir over the summer that I really loved by Kit Duval called Without Warning and Only Sometimes. And it's a really interesting memoir because she doesn't do that thing of looking back on her childhood in retrospect you're right in there. She starts with her thoughts as a young girl growing up um, in the West Midlands 
in a religiously evangelical family, um, the issues she has, uh, the way she drops out of school, and then her final route to realising that she wants to be a writer. And it's just beautifully written and really, really engaging. And then I'm going to make another rather odd suggestion um, called Will You Read This, Please?, which is a collection of essays edited by Joanna Cannon. And she came up with this idea. She's a former doctor as well as a very acclaimed novelist. And she approached a group of established writers, people like Tracy Chevalier and Claire McIntosh, and then a group of people who have suffered from some form of mental illness. And the people spoke to the writers and the writers wrote their stories as essays, which makes it sound as though it would be quite hard to read or quite depressing or difficult. But it's actually fascinating because you realise that various forms of mental illness can happen to almost anybody, whether it's postnatal depression or a congenital mental illness. You get such a range of stories in the hands of really experienced and accomplished novelists. And and it's a great read. It's fascinating. I do find, for pure enjoyment, well-written memoir, memoirs that are written with a novelist's skill, when you know it's a real story, so there's that extra frisson, but they still have the descriptive skill of novelists. I've just got Natasha Walters' new book. I'm really looking forward to that. What was the name of the Kit Duval book again? Without Warning and Only Sometimes. It's a great title. It is, isn't it? Um, when you've um, finished reading a book, Louise, do you tend to, uh, do you lend it to family and friends? I mean, obviously, if it's a really, really good one, then maybe you do. Or maybe you decide, no, I want to hold on to this and put it on, put it on my shelf at home. What what, what happens mm, to the one? Oh, absolutely. Today? They can keep their sticky mitts off. <laughs> I've come a cropper like that so many times, lending treasured books and not getting them back. Mm. And I feel very attached to the physical copy that I have read, which quite often has my notes in or I turn over the pages or I scribble on it in some way. Or, and I feel quite even, you know, if somebody loses a book and they just offer to replace it, I think, no, but it's not the same. Yeah. It's not the one I read. And also, let's face it, you know, I, I earn my living from people buying books. So it's like, go out and buy it. The author probably needs the royalties. Mm. Now, I, I, I do my utmost to avoid lending people books. Do you have a favourite place to write? I do. Well, I have a favourite sort of place, and that is outside my own house and cafes, cafes and libraries. And I'm always on the hunt for new places. There's something about leaving the house to go to work that I need to do, because if I'm at home, I just still have my domestic head on, even if no one else is in the house. You know, I go and boil the kettle and I think, oh, I'd better take the chicken out of the freezer. And actually putting my laptop in my bag, going for a walk, preferably sort of half an hour or so, walking first and then settling in a cafe. Window seats are good. I really like a window seat so you can stare at people going past as well as people in the cafe and a nice, strong black coffee. And that's that's what does it for me. Uh, so we come to, to the to the question that I alluded to in the previous podcast, uh, Louise. How long do you give a book? Do you always finish it? And how long do you give one if it's not working? And are you going to be brutally honest here? Because I, I will make a decision very, very early on. Yeah, me too. I'm getting more and more ruthless the older mm. I get. You know, you think that the four horses of the apocalypse are coming <laughs> for me soon. I mean, statistically, I don't want to sit down and work out how many more books I'm going to read before I die, you know. <laughs> and the closer the end gets, the quicker you've got to be, really. If it's a novel that I think is well-written, 
but it's not quite grabbed me yet. I might give it 50 or 100 pages to uh -huh. see. But bad writing, bad yeah, prose, yeah, yeah. that's it. They they have me till end of the page, first Correct. page, page if they're one. lucky. It's quite just right. bang, yep. snap it shut. Now. Off you go. You might notice that Matt is quick to judge. <laughs> um, now, we, we do like to have a surprise question. Oh, dear. Uh, from a fellow author or fan or both. So we have a voice note here from someone. Oh, who I th I Who's think, this going to be? I think, I think, I, sorry, it's fine. I think you, and, and you know who they are. Anyway, here comes our top voice note for today. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. Hey, Louise. It's Tracy here. You know I'm a big fan of you and your books. And what I'd like to know is we writers have to do a lot of research and often have to do what our characters do. So how was it for you having to go off grid in the wilds of Scotland to research a burden winter? Okay, so that's Tracy yeah. Chevalier, um, uh, obviously. We touched a bit of this in, in, in the other podcast, but uh, the relationship between research and what goes into the book is an interesting one. That's fantastic. I didn't know you were going to do that. I love Tracy. The, uh, the admiration is mutual. But yes, uh, for research into a bird in winter, I did go on the run and I did go off grid, as she says. I put the rucksack on my back and the beanie hat and off I went. And it was a challenge for me. I'm not particularly fit. I mean, just look at me. Uh, or physically brave. Um, I don't do any exercise. I really can't run. I'm too uh, uncoordinated. I end up falling flat on my face. I mean, exercise is actually dangerous for someone like me. And... I'm quite a scaredy cat. You know, I, I don't really like walking in remote areas on my own, certainly not when the phone signal dies. But that was useful for the book because Heather is very much on her own and at some point during her flight she realises she's being pursued. So I did have to imagine fear and that, that wasn't hard for me to do. Uh, I have to say... It did come towards the end of the pandemic as well, as soon as restrictions released. It was bliss to be on my own, having been locked away with the entire family. Um, I'm not somebody who particularly enjoyed everything closing up or shutting down. I found it incredibly hard. So once restrictions lifted, I was out like a kind of greyhound out of the trap. I loved it. How how closely were you skirt, skirting to danger? Because there will be places in Scotland where the phone signal, regardless of whether you turn your phone off or not, there's no phone signal. So if you're on your own, was there a point where you were like, right, this is a bit, uh, this is research for a book. I am not putting myself in danger. Uh, where on earth is this guest house? Were there points where you were wondering that? Yes, and in fact, there's a crucial scene in the book where something very dark happens that was based on my own arrival in Thurso at the very, very top of the British mainland. And I'd got a bus up there from Inverness. It'd taken about four or five hours, and my stop was the last stop. So there were only about three other people got off the bus, and they melted into the night, and the bus pulled away, and I was on my own in the middle of this deserted town with the wind howling, and the sea crashing onto the pebble beach. Um, and I had to find my guest house. And it was not hard for me to imagine what that would be like for Heather. And that's where that scene in the book grew from. Back to the Q&A. Do, do you have a favourite character from one of your books? Well, it's probably all, always the one that I'm talking about. Mm. At the moment, it's yeah. Heather. At the moment, it's Bird. Um, and I feel quite protective towards her and quite defensive of her. It's an odd thing. 
So, yes, it changes with each book and it's almost always the most recent character. She's underestimated, isn't she? She is. She says in the book, all my life people have underestimated me. But the truth is she's probably underestimated herself and she has got to discover her own inner strength and resourcefulness in order to do what she does. Uh, You had Apple Tree Yard adapted uh, for the screen. Platform 7 uh, is on the way uh, for ITVX, but... Aside from those two, do you have a favourite screen adaptation of a book? Not yours. Not mine. I tell you, there's a film I absolutely love called Adaptation Oh yeah. by Spike Jones. Um, and it's Nicolas Cage plays Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter. And it's it's the most bonkers film. It's absolutely hilarious. And it, it it's very heartfelt from the point of view of a writer and a writer's insecurities. And he invents this glamorous identical twin brother who is basically his old his more successful alter ego, just sort of haunting him. And he's supposing uh, he's supposed to be adapting a book about orchids by Susan, I think, Orleon, I think it's about who's played by Meryl Streep. And it's a kind of nature book and he's trying to write a dramatic adaptation of it and they they want car chases and crocodile (laughs) attacks and then there's rubber crocodiles in the... I mean, it's just the most... It's made by the same team that made Being John Malkovich. So if you've seen Being John Malkovich, you know what you're in for. But yeah, adaptation directed by Spike Jones. It's just mad and hilarious. Okay. Do you remember the first book that you bought with your own money? So not one that was bought for you by grandparents or whatever, one that you went into a bookshop and says, I'm going to give you my pocket money for that. I do. When I was at primary school, I was obsessed with the Narnia books. Oh, yeah. The C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I think I was given the first one. I was probably given The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then I realised there was a whole series. There was seven of them to collect and I remember saving up my pennies and very proudly going into the local bookshop stroke news agents and coming out, clutching them one by one. I was literally quite obsessed. There's probably quite a lot of time hiding in wardrobes. It's a bit sad. Really. I mean, I was, to be fair, I was growing up in a small town in the East Midlands. There wasn't a great deal else to do. Which was the small than, town? Um, it was Oakham. I was born in Melton Mowbray. Right. And then I grew up in Oakham which is now quite shishi. It certainly wasn't in the 1970s, I can tell you. And, yeah, the only place to go was the local library. Uh, So I think, you know, I I do credit that local library, unprepossessing as it is, with turning me into into a writer. So you published, uh, this is book number 10. Uh, What advice would you give your old self, a young Louise Doughty? Mm, What advice would I give my younger self? I think... When you're just starting out. Yes, Probably to try hard, because it is hard, to care less about what other people think. I think as a young person, you know, to start off with, you're incredibly self-conscious and you care a lot about what other people think. But it's even worse when you're a young writer because you're putting yourself out there. And, you know, everybody's early books tend to have elements of autobiography. So if you get a bad review, you take it very, very personally. And also, I think as a young woman writer... There was a real sense that, um, you know, you were supposed to be writing romance or you were supposed... A sense that people wanted to put you in a pigeonhole. They wanted you to do a certain sort of book. And I think, in many ways, I wish I'd been bolder as a young woman. Um, I've got bolder and bolder the old I've got. I'm going to be a really 
bad-tempered lady, <laughs> and I cannot wait. And have you ever come up with an idea where, um, in order to try and make that idea work, you would need to go to some exotic location in order to do your research trip? So obviously, with Bird and Winter, we go to we go Birmingham, Carlisle, tips of Scotland, and then across to Norway and Iceland and places like that. Have you ever thought, do you know what, I might set my next book in Jamaica or Miami or wherever? Well, you, you've just described my working life, really. There is a sense, well, where would I like to go to next? I, I've not always been that clever about it. I mean, I wrote a book set in rural Indonesia, um, which was Blackwater, and I went to Indonesia four or five times for that. But the next novel was Platform 7, which was set on Peterborough Railway Station. (laughs) And there was a sort of 4am on Peterborough Railway Station. I thought, hang on a minute. The last novel I was walking the rice fields of Bali at dawn. You know, here I am. Um, but I think it is one of the great joys of being a writer. Uh, it's it just this, you have this cast iron excuse. You have an alibi for living the life you want to lead. And for me, it is a life of travel and curiosity. And I think it was Martha Gellhorn said, being a writer is a great excuse for going out and finding out about things. And there is a, a lovely sense when you're in, you know, my very privileged position of being paid to do it. It's a bit like a box of chocolates. I write, what shall I do next? Where shall I go next? And I do, I mean, in my defence, all I can say is I really do know how lucky I am. I wake up every morning and I just think I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet. Finally, you are, this is one of those fantasy dinner party questions, okay? Uh, You can invite three authors, living or dead. Ah, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. The Bronte sisters as you've given me three, yeah. uh, Charlotte, Emily and Anne. And I'm very relieved it's only three because that means they'd have to leave Branwell at home because he's just <laughs> the most awful drunken bore and talentless in comparison with his sisters. Also, I'm really pleased it's three because I would really want to see them together. I mean, obviously, I'd like to meet them individually, but to see the way that those three women sparked off each other uh, would be absolutely fascinating, wouldn't it? And they're, you know, those amazing childhoods when they wrote those childhood stories, and then of course the, you know, the tragic early ends. But to see those young women at the height of their powers in their early twenties, uh, I would love that. Yes, please. That would be a great dinner party. It really would. That would be terrific. Uh, Louise, thank you very much, Deep, for uh, for joining us. A Bird in Winter by Louise Doughty is published by Faber. It's out now. You can hear a. Discuss that book in detail on our other podcast, which came out a few days ago. Uh, If you haven't got to that already, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much indeed. Hope you can join us then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.